Hello? 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 Yes, this is MCO. Hello? This is MCO. Hello? Hello? This is another MCO and transmission. study Sunday um, we're back with the new sutra tonight um, this sutra is called the Shurangama Sutra uh, Shurangama means indestructible so this is the indestructible sutra uh, I'm gonna give just a quick intro to this sutra but then we're gonna actually go get into it and kind of go back to the old-school style of our sutra study of go- really going through a text kind of almost line by line um, rather than doing these broad overviews. Um, this is one of those great Mahayana sutras that was really, really popular in China for a long time, real popular in Tibetan Buddhism, Japanese Buddhism, uh, Mongolian Buddhism, Korean Buddhism. Probably, um, this is again like a, a great Mahayana sutra, and like all great Mahayana sutras, we don't know where they came from. They just sort of appear in the world. Um, I'll tell you historically that the earliest historical reference to this is about 700 AD when a monk from Central Asia made his way to uh, China and said, hey, I I know the Sharangama Sutra and translated this out into Chinese from some Central Asian language, maybe Gandhari. Maybe Sanskrit, we don't know. Now, like all Mahayana sutras that came to China and were translated, they all came from India, had a history in India, northern India usually. And this one probably did as well. We just don't have many records of this in India at all. In fact, 700 AD is actually pretty late to to be translated into Chinese. Most of the major Chinese translations had occurred by 300 AD, 400 AD, by 500 AD, the project's kind of over. So this is a little late. Yeah, Jenny. Did, did you say that someone brought this from India? Where did this, okay. Yep, so a monk shows up in China. Like, this is, this is how it all goes down, historically. These monks th- throw, show up in China. Maybe they're from Gandhara, which is today Afghanistan. That's like a major place. They don't, might, might also be from Kashmir. Mm. They might be from Samarkand, somewhere in Central Asia. They show up to China. They either know some Chinese or they can communicate with somebody that knows Chinese. And they would start a process of laying this out in Sanskrit or some other Central Asian language and then slowly translate it into Chinese. That's the way all of these happened. I just want to point out that in the grand scheme of things, this is a little later than most, which is Great news, because that means the ideas in here are very developed Buddhist ideas. They're very far along. So this is not going to be representative of an early Theravada Buddhism by any means. This is going to be a very late actual Yogacara type of Buddhism. Um, Like many sutras that were translated into Chinese, we don't know what the original Sanskrit title was. But we can guess. Because a Chinese title like this, Da Ho, Ti Long Yanjing. So that, we know that Da is how they translated Maha, great or big. 
This is the character for Buddha, we know Buddha. This, these two characters actually stand for something called the Ushnisha. And the Ushnisha is the top knot protrudence that Buddhas have. It's called an Ushnisha. And it's one of the 32 marks of a Superman or of a um, enlightened being, basically. This is an old tradition in India that enlightened beings have 32 distinguishing lakshana, distinguishing characteristics that make them identifiable as enlightened people. Again, there's the 32 marks, the protrudence, this kind of bulge of the head is one. Again, it's called the ushnisha. The erna, the white tuft of hair between the eyebrows, the erna, that's another one. The svastika, on the, the colored svastika on the chest that emits light, that's one. Um, and there are 29 others. Um, so, that, so the ushnisha, though, is an interesting characteristic. So that's what these two characters mean. And then this means indestructible in Chinese, and shurangama means indestructible. So what happens a lot in Buddhist studies is that we will do what's called a back translation, which is that we take what we know was Sanskrit and translate it into Chinese, and then we back translate it and say, oh, this was probably called the Mahabuddha Ushnisha Shurangama Sutra. Probably, but we don't know. We do know that it was called this in Chinese. And what's even crazier is that the actual title of it in the full, big, long Chinese title is that this is actually the sutra that's spoken from the Ushnisha of the Buddha. So this is these, there are a few sutras. It almost becomes a genre, actually, of sutras. A genre being this like little subsect of sutras that are spoken from the Buddha's Ushnisha. What does that mean? Yeah. We're going to explore that, you know, because when I first hear that, I'm thinking like freestyle rap off the dome piece, right, kind of thing. Like maybe it's that. Well, one thing you should know is that the top knot protrudence is definitely this symbol of great wisdom. And so to say that a sutra is going to be spoken from the Ushnisha, it could be poetically alluding to how, like what a high level of wisdom it's going to be. And indeed, the sutras that are spoken from the Ushnisha tend to be pretty uh, profound in that way. Oh. Is, that, is it a hair or a hat? It is the head. It's, it's an actual protrudence oh. that actually there. This is in the so another one is long earlobes, like and there's this thing culturally, and it's not just Chinese. It's not just Buddhist. It's like kind of. You go to Africa, you go all over the place, and long earlobes is like a sign of wisdom, and then actual developing a bump on the head, like a protrudence, which they call an ushnisha, is a sign of wisdom. Ancient aliens. Kind of. Sort of. I don't know. Crystal skulls. I don't know. Um, but so either we're talking about an actual, you get so smart, your brain swells, and, some, and a protrudence happens. Or iconographically, <coughs> these Buddhas have these protrudences that are representative of their wisdom. And then what happens in like Thai Buddhism, you'll start to see the flaming Ushnisha, where the Ushnisha, the protrudence, is actually a flame. And that's definitely a sign of this kind of wisdom, the light of wisdom emanating from the crown of the Buddha. So that's that. Um, yep. So 
is this actual bone or is it like <laughs> or is it like a horn? Not bone. It would be like uh, an actual like swelling of the fontanelle, sort of. <laughs> or yeah. All right. So. All right. Questions, ideas. That's all we got. We got this. Oh, we got this indestructible sutra. But this whole sutra, and I do plan on sort of going through the whole thing. The first chapter is amazing, so we're really going to go slowly through that. Other chapters, I will maybe just skim through them. But you should know also that this sutra. It, it's, it's centered around a two things. Okay, so the, this sutra contains, it's called the Shurangama Sutra, seemingly because it contains the Shurangama Samadhi. And so if you remember, these Samadhis are <coughs> deep meditative states, but in Mahayana <coughs> Buddhism, they're very interesting meditative states. They're these interesting states of meditative contemplation, hmm. contemplating indestructibility. And what indestructible means in a Buddhist context, we'll, we'll talk about in a moment. And then the Shurangama Sutra also contains the Shurangama Dharani, or sometimes called a mantra, which is this incantation or spell that either puts one in the Shurangama Samadhi, or it's what you're chanting while you're in the Shurangama Samadhi. And both, or I should say all three, the Sutra, the Samadhi, and the Dharani are all part of this um, concept of indestructibility. And if you took, or were here when I did my classes on Vimalakirti, and there was the section on the samadhi on the inconceivable, and when we were in the, in the samadhi of the inconceivable, we took Mount Maru and put it in a mustard seed, and we took, you know, turned the whole world upside down and nobody knew it. That was the inconceivable samadhi that allowed you to take a whole mountain and put it in a, in a mustard seed without shrinking the mountain, without growing the mustard seed. That's inconceivable. The samadhi we're going to deal with tonight and probably the next few Sundays is in samadhi of indestructibility. And again, we're going to explore what that means. All right, that's all you kind of need to know going into it. Thus have I heard. Uh, oh, by the way, I'm reading from Charles Looks. Uh, this is probably the more famous one. There's a newer one that just came out. It's almost the same, Lu Kuan Yu, that's his Chinese name. Uh, this is pretty much the more accepted translation at this time, just because it's been around for a while, and it's pretty good. Um, if you go and read this, though, a uh, quick warning. Like many spiritual texts that you'll come across in your life, there will be, there will be the text. But then sometimes there's added things, and then sometimes there's commentary. And sometimes when you get a hold of spiritual texts, a classic example is the Bhagavad Gita, it's sometimes often hard to figure out, wait, what's the original poem, and what's the commentary, and what's the commentary on the commentary, and what's the commentary on the commentary? So this is one of those where it's helpful to have a little, either somebody like myself that can help you through it, or just to know that not all of this is the sutra. A lot of this is actually a 
I think a Song Dynasty, no, a Ming Dynasty commentary. No, actually, there's subdivided headings, uh, descriptive headings that are not part of the original suture. Those are Ming Dynasty divisions of the suture into sections and chapters with titles and meanings. And then there's also a commentary that's translated here, none of which, again, is the original sutra. I'm just going to read to you the sutra, and I'm going to give you my take or two cents. And if I think it's significant, I'll tell you some of these other commentaries. Okay. So that's that. Just so you know, if you ever come across this. Thus have I heard. Uh, once the Buddha was staying in the Jetavana near Shravasti with 1,250 bhikkhus most of whom were great arhats who had crossed the stream of transmigration. They upheld the Buddha's teaching firmly, could leap over all realms of existence, and had achieved a respect-inspiring deportment, which was held in great esteem throughout the country. They followed the Buddha to turn the wheel of the law and were qualified to hand down his dharma. Being self-disciplined, they set a good example in the three worlds in which they appeared in countless transformation bodies to deliver living beings and to save future generations from defilement. They were led by Shariputra the Wise, Mahamadgulyana, Maha Kushtila, Purnamatreya Yanaputra, Subhuti, and Upanishad. There were also countless Pratekya Buddhas, who, since they had conquered their old <coughs> habits, had nothing more to learn, yet came to the Buddha's Vihara determined to seek the ultimate truth. Now, the summer retreat, the three month summer meditation retreat, had just finished when the bhikkhus took stock of their errors and mistakes and when the bodhisattvas from the ten directions determined to wipe out their remaining doubts and suspicions reverentially awaited the teaching in their search for its esoteric meaning. And so the Tathagata, the Buddha, arranged his seat and sat with crossed legs to proclaim the profound dharma. Such a dharma feast to purify the assembly had never taken, before, taken place before and his melodious voice was heard in the ten directions. Led by Manju Sri. The Bodhisattva of Wisdom, a number of Bodhisattvas as countless as sand, grains in the Ganges River, had come to this holy place. Meanwhile, King Prasanajit, who was keeping the anniversary of his father's death by offering vegetarian food to him, came personally to invite the Buddha to the inner palace for a royal feast of best and rarest delicacies, to which he also invited the great Bodhisattvas in the assembly. In the city, the elders and devotees also offered food to members of the Sangha and reverentially waited for the Buddha's arrival. Commanded by the Buddha, Manjushri took the bodhisattvas and arhats to this royal feast. Ananda, however, the Buddha's young cousin, had not come back from a distant engagement and so was not among those invited. He was returning to the Vihara alone without his superior or a teacher and bowl in hand and with bowl in hand went begging from door to door in a nearby town. He intended to call first on a donor who had not given food to the monks that day, regardless of whether or not he was virtuous, a noble or an outcast. In his practice of universal compassion, he did not especially choose a poor man as his patron. He wanted to help all living beings earn countless merits, for he had seen the Buddha scold Shibuti and Mahakashapya, who, though being arhats, could not realize universal mind when begging for food. He very much admired his teaching. He very much admired this <coughs> teaching, which had eliminated all his doubts and suspicions in this respect. So when he reached the town's gate, 
Ananda walked slowly, adjusting his mane to the rules of the discipline. As he went begging from, from door to door for food, he came to a house of prostitution, where Matangi, a low-caste woman, <coughs> succeeded by means of Kapila magic in drawing him close to her sensual body on a mat so that he was on the point of breaking the rules of pure living. But the Buddha was aware of all of this, and after the royal feast, he returned to the vihara with the king, princes and elders who wished to hear about the essentials of the Dharma. He then sent out from the top of his head a bright and triumphant <laughs> multicolored light within which appeared a transformation body of a Buddha seated with crossed legs on a thousand-petaled lotus. The Buddha then repeated the transcendental mantra and ordered Manjo Tree to use it to overcome the magic and to bring Ananda with Matangi to the Vihara. When Ananda saw, so that happened, and when Ananda saw the Buddha, he prostrated himself at his feet, weeping bitterly and saying that since the time without beginning, though he had heard much about the Dharma, he still could not acquire the transcendental power of the Tao, the way, the Dharma. Earnestly, he asked the Buddha to teach the primary expedients in the practice of shamatha, samadhi, and dhyana, which led to the enlightenment of all Buddhas in all ten directions. There was also present a great number of bodhisattvas, a countless, as countless as grain sands in the Ganges River, and great arhats and particular Buddhas who had come wishing to hear about the Dharma. They all waited silently and reverentially for the holy teaching. Okay. First, a word about Mahayana Sutras, right? So it's tempting to hear this as a historical account, right? The one time the Buddha was in Shravasti and Ananda didn't show up because he was with a prostitute, right? That's the story. But, you know, this is the one, if I've come here to teach anything, it's that these Mahayana Sutras are... They're not Theravada sutras. Again, they're not historical documents. What's happening here is a few things. Ananda is the youngest of the Buddha's disciples. And if you've been with me or studied sutras, you know Ananda is always the dullest uh, tool in the shed, right? Or something like that. He's always the one that's the slowest. Um, there's the story of the first council after the Buddha's death, and Ananda could, wasn't invited, and he had to pop through the keyhole. So there's always these stories of Ananda being like, nah, you know, not up to speed and then having the Buddha having to school him. In that sense, Ananda represents the old teachings, the old ways. And in this story, what's funny is this little thing about him getting sidetracked by a prostitute. And then so then the Buddha had to come with his magic light, had to come and transport him to the, to the Dharma feast. They're not, it's all kind of poetic. They're not talking about Ananda going to a prostitute. They're talking about, so how can I just put this? The reason why Ananda was the last to the assembly because he was with a prostitute is because the sexual desire, according to the Buddha, not just Buddhism, but according to the Buddha, the sexual desire is the hardest one. It's the last, hardest, final one to overcome. So that's why Ananda isn't there yet. And he's still with his sensual desire. That's the, the story he's talking about. 
it's all allegory in that sense with the different arhats or the different, you know, whether it's Shibuti or Shariputra, they all represent different things. And so then when you read a sutra and it's like, oh, Ananda, he wasn't there yet. It's not that the historical figure Ananda didn't make it. It's that that, that way of thinking isn't there yet type of a thing. So it's fun. It's really funny when you know that this is all allegory in that sense, right? Okay. Now we begin the sort of the lesson. The Buddha said to Ananda, you and I are close relatives. Tell me what you saw in the assembly when you made up your mind to give up all worldly feelings of affection and love to follow me, meaning to follow the Dharma. Ananda replied, I saw the 32 excellent characteristics and the shining crystal-like form of the Buddha's body. I thought that all this could not be the result of desire and lust, for desire creates foul and fetid impurities like pus and blood, which mingle and cannot produce the wondrous brightness of his golden-hued body, in admiration of which I shaved my head to follow him. The Buddha said, Ananda, and all of you should know that living beings, since, ta- since the time without beginning, have been subject to continuously, have been subject continuously to birth and death because they do not know the permanent true mind whose substance is, by nature, pure and bright. By the way, it's capital T, capital M, true mind. And in many ways, that's what this sutra is about, is the true mind. Once again, just to reiterate, living beings, since time without beginning, have been subject continuously to birth and death because they do not know the permanent true mind whose substance is, by nature, pure and bright. They have relied on false thinking, which is not capital R reality, so that the wheel of samsara turns. Now, if you wish to study the unsurpassed supreme Bodhi enlightenment, to realize this bright, true nature, you should answer my questions straightforwardly. All Buddhas in the directions trod the same path to escape from birth and death because of their straightforward minds. With the same straightforwardness of mind and speech from start to finish without a trace of crookedness. Ananda, when you developed that mind because of the Buddha's excellent 32 characteristics, tell me what saw and loved them. Ananda replied, World Honor One, my love came from my use of my mind, my eye seeing and my mind admiring them. So that is what, <coughs> so that is what set on relinquishing birth and death. The Buddha continued, as you just said, your love was caused by your mind and eyes. But if you do not know where your mind and eyes really are, you will never be able to destroy delusion. For instance, when the country is invaded by bandits, the king, before sending his soldiers to destroy them, should first know where they are. That which causes you to transmigrate without interruption comes from defects in your mind and eyes. 
Now tell me, where are your mind and eyes? Ananda replied, world honored one, all living beings born in the world through the ten types of birth hold that this knowing mind is in the body. As I look at the lotus blue eyes of the Buddha, I see that they are on his face. Hence my understanding that my eyes are on my face, whereas my knowing mind is in my body. So, Ananda, Ananda's first answer to where his mind is, is in the body. any point you stop me anybody stop me at any point so um, hence my understanding that my eyes are on my face whereas my knowing mind is in my body the Buddha asked now as you sit here in this hall where do you see the mission district where do you see Jetavana Park Ananda replied world honor one this great hall is in Jetavana Park, which is therefore outside the hall. The Buddha asked, what do you see first in this hall? Ananda replied, world honor one. In this hall, I see first the Tathagata, the Buddha, then the assembly, and only when looking outside do I see the park. The Buddha asked, when you see the park, what causes you to do so? Ananda replied, It is because the doors and windows are open that I, though sitting in this hall, see the park outside. The Buddha then extended his golden-hued arm and touched Ananda's head with his hand, saying, There is a samadhi called the all-embracing supreme Shurangama, a gateway through which all Buddhas in the Ten Directions attained the wondrous, majestic path. Ananda, listen attentively. <coughs> Ananda prostrated himself at the Buddha's feet and knelt to receive the holy instruction. The Buddha said, If you are right, that while sitting in this hall, you see the park outside through the open doors and windows, it would be possible for someone sitting here to see only things outside without seeing the Buddha within. Ananda replied, one cannot see the grove and stream outside without seeing the Buddha here. The Buddha said, Ananda, it's the same with you. If your mind is not deluded, it will be clear about all this. However, if your knowing mind was really in your body, you should first be clear about everything inside it. You should therefore see everything in your body before seeing things outside it. Even if you cannot see your heart, liver, spleen, and stomach, at least you should be clear about your growing nails and hair, about that which moves along your nerves and the pulsing of your veins. Why are you not clear about all this? If you do not see things within, how can you see those outside? Therefore, your contention that your knowing mind is in your body is groundless. So, <laughs> uh, 
bowed and said, after hearing the Buddha's Dharma voice, I now understand that my mind is really outside my body. For instance, this is Ananda. For instance, where is it? Where is it? For instance, a lamp should light up everything in a room before the courtyard outside through the open door. If I do not see what is in my body, but see things outside it, this is like a lamp placed outside a room which cannot light that which is in it, only that which is outside it. Ananda's smiling. He's like, yay. <laughs> this being so clear that there can be no doubt, am I still wrong about what the Buddha means? The Buddha said, all the bhikkhus followed me to Shravasti to beg for food and have now returned to the Jetavana Park. I have taken my meal but as one bhikkhu is still eating, is the whole community well fed? Ananda replied, no world honor one. Though they are arhats, they have not the same body or lifespan. Then how can one by eating cause all others to, be satis to satisfy their hunger? The Buddha said, if your knowing mind is outside your body, the two are separate. Thus, when your mind knows something, your body should not feel it. And when your body feels something, your mind should not be aware of it. Now, as I show you my hand, when your eyes see it, does your mind discern it? Ananda replied, yes, World Honored One, my mind discerns it. The Buddha said, if so, how can your mind be outside your body? Therefore, your contention that your knowing, mind, knowing and discerning mind is outside your body is groundless. Yeah? This one's probably like, well, yeah, kind of obviously. But of course, Ananda's like, well, if it's not in it, then it has to be outside of it, right? But the Buddha says, no. <laughs> that's, that's groundless. <laughs> right? Ananda said, world honorable, as you have said, if my mind does not see what is in my body, it's not within it. And if my body and my mind know each other, they cannot be separate. And my mind is therefore not outside my body. Now, after thinking about this, I know where my mind is. <laughs> the Buddha asked, where is it? Ananda replied, since my mo knowing mind does not see what is in my body, but can see things outside, I think it is hidden in my sense organs. For instance, if one covers one's eyes with a crystal bowl, the latter does not obstruct this sense organ, which simply follows the faculty of seeing to distinguish all things seen. Thus, if my knowing mind does not see what is in my body, it is because it is in the sense organ. And if it sees clearly what is outside without being obstructed, it is because it is hidden in that organ. You liking this one? You think this might be the one, right? The Buddha asked, as you just said, the mind is hidden in the same way that the eyes are covered by the crystal bowl. Now, when one so covers them and sees the mountains and rivers, does one also see the crystal bowl? Ananda replied, yes, world honor, one does see the bowl. The Buddha said, if your mind is like the crystal bowl, when you see the mountain and river, why do you not see your own eyes? 
If you, if you do, they should be outside and should not follow your faculty of seeing. If they cannot be seen, how can you say that this knowing mind is hidden in the sense organ, like the eyes covered by crystal bowls? Therefore, your contention that the knowing mind is hidden in the sense organ is groundless. So, hidden in the sense organ. Ananda asked, world honor one, I now think, okay, ah, I now think of my bowels concealed in my body and of the apertures at the surface. Therefore, where there is concealment, there is darkness, and where there, is, where there are openings, there is light. As I am now before the Buddha, I open my eyes and see clearly that this is called outward seeing. And when I close them, I see only darkness. And this is called inward seeing. What does the Buddha think of this? <laughs> the Buddha said, when you close your eyes and see darkness, is this darkness opposite to your eyes or not? If it is, it is in front of them. Then how can this be inward seeing? Even if there really is such inward seeing, when you sit in a dark room without the light of a sun, moon, or a lamp, this darkness should also be in your bowels. If it is not opposite your eyes, how can there be any seeing? Now let us forget your so-called outward seeing and assume that there is this inward seeing. Then when you close your eyes and see only darkness, which you call seeing what is in your body, why when you open them and see clearly, do you not see your own face? If you do not, there is no such inward seeing. Now, assuming that you can see your face, your knowing mind and organ of sight should be in the air. And then, how can there be inward seeing? If they were in the air, they should not belong to your body, and the Buddha who now sees your face should be your body as well. Thus, when your eyes see something, your body should have no feeling. If you insist that both body and mind have separate feelings, there should be two separate perceptions, and then your body should one day become two Buddhas. Therefore, your contention that to see darkness is inward seeing is groundless. So, A4 here, that it is... Concealed, well, concealed in the body, but it's. It's both out and inside, right? Like an aperture. And the Buddha says that would make it two in terms of the inward seeing, outward seeing. So he says, no. Ananda said, okay, okay. I have always heard the Buddha when teaching monks and nuns and male and female devotees say, when the mind stirs, all sorts of things are created and then all kinds of mind appear. I now think that the substance of my thinking 
is the nature of, my, of mind which arises when it unites with externals and which is neither within nor without nor in between. So, is neither, what was it? In, without, or in between. So this is, upon first blush here, this sounds like the Buddha Dharma. This sounds like what the, you know, the old school idea of Buddha mind, that it's a, a dependently originated, arises. And so let's see. The Buddha said, you have just said that because phenomena are created, all kinds of mind appear when uniting with them. So this mind has no substance and cannot unite with anything. If that which has no substance can unite with externals, this is union of the 19th realm of sense with the seventh sense datum. This is sheer nonsense. So let me clarify that real quick before. So. <coughs> so very, I, ah, gosh, let's see here. So there is this concept of the 18 gatus or realms. And what this is, so there are six sense organs, and then six corresponding sense objects. And when each of these organs come into contact with its sense object, there arises a vision of Vijnana, which is a consciousness, an eye consciousness, an ear consciousness, like an ear awareness, an eye awareness, a nose awareness, a tongue awareness, a body awareness, and then kind of a brain awareness, a sixth Vijnana that's kind of a brain awareness. And so these six, six organs with these corresponding six objects, which produce these six corresponding Vijnana, this makes 18 aspects of reality. You've got six types of stuff, six sensory organs, and so when the six types of things come into contact with the six sensory organs, there emerges six types of consciousness. And so what the Buddha was getting on Ananda about, he was like, okay, so you're saying that there's this mind that arises from contact with these organs, and he's saying, so is that like a 19th sense Con like, which, which one is that? What is the substance of this mind that arises? Because I've already told you where all these consciousnesses come from. So what's this mind, Ananda, that you're talking about? Does it have a substance? Right? Ananda, you've just said that because phenomena are created, all kinds of mind appear when uniting with them. So this mind that you're talking about has no substance and cannot unite with anything? If that which has no substance 
can unite with externals. So this has substance, this has substance, rupa, form, and when rupa meets rupa of certain types, it produces certain types of consciousness. And now he's saying, so there's this non-substantive mind you're talking about, Ananda. Uh, what's it come into contact with? Where does it fit into my dharma realms here? Is, is what he's saying, right? If that which has no substance can unite with externals, this is a union of the 19th realm of sense with a 7th sense data. So it's a 19th realm with the 7th sense data. He's like, what are you talking about? All right. So this is a beautiful part of, of what he's about to say. When I read this for the first time, it flipped me. It tripped me out a little bit. So I'm hoping I can induce that same trip out in you. So this is after he says this about that. That's all nonsense. So listen really carefully to this. So Ananda, if this mind that you're talking about has substance, when your hand grasps your body, does your mind feeling this touch come from within or without? So when you go like this, you are both the object and perceiver simultaneously. Do you see what I'm doing here? We can all do this. And when I read that, I was like, because you realize that when you touch yourself, you are both being perceived and perceiving, right? Because if, if this does this, I can feel it. But I don't know what this is feeling. I'm only an experiencer, right? But when I do this, I'm experiencing it, but I'm also an experiencer that's like feeling stuff. So I am feeling and being felt, right? What did Jimmy say? Have you ever been experienced, <laughs> right? Not necessarily stoned, but beautiful. Um, no, but that idea, have you ever been experienced, right? Not experiencing, but being experienced. That's a trip. I'm telling you, meditate on that. Am I the object? Am I the object of sense or am I the sensor of it? You're both, right? It's a trip. If you really think about that, that you are being both perceived and perceiving yourself, right? So if the mind has substance, when your mind grasps your body, or sorry, when your hand grasps your body, does your mind feeling this touch come from within or without? Does it come from my leg or my hand? <laughs> right? It's like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> if from within, so if from my leg, you should see that what, that what is in your body. Sorry. If from within, you should see what is in your body. And if from without, you should see your own face. Right? Because if I'm experiencing it from my leg, I should be able to see my own face with my leg or something, right? But if I'm seeing it from this hand from within, I should be able to see what's in my body. And the Buddha already said it, I can't see what's in my body, right? Ananda said, so oh wait, so if from within, you should see what is in your body. And if it's coming from without, you should be able to see your own face. Ananda said, it is the eyes that see and the mind that knows, not the eyes. To say that it sees is wrong. The Buddha said, 
If the eyes can see, when you are in a room, do you see the outside of the door? Right? So do you see the outside of the door? Those who are dead and still have eyes should see things. If they still see, how can they be dead? There's a weird line, by the way, that I'm not fully sure of, like, how it's functioning in this. Ananda, if your knowing mind, this, this one you're talking about, if your knowing mind has substance, is that substance single or manifold? As it is in your body, does it spread to every part of it or not? If it is of one substance, when you grasp a limb, all four limbs should feel that they are grasped. If so, there would be no grasping of any particular limb. If there is, the contention of a single substance does not hold good. If it is manifold substance, if so, if this consciousness you're talking about is manifold substance, there should be many persons. Then which substance is yours? If it spreads to every part of your body, this is the same as in the previous case of grasping, that if you grasp here, you should feel it everywhere. Right? If it does not spread, then when you touch your head and foot at the same time, while your head feels that it is touched, your foot should not. But this is not so. Therefore, your contention that the mind arises when there is union with externals is groundless. So, I mean, all of these, of course, call for more careful reading. Yeah, we need a fucking review here. That's why I'm writing stuff on the board. So, okay. Arising from contact with externals. I believe he only has seven answers here. Okay. <laughs> Ananda said, World Honor One, I have heard the Buddha discuss capital R reality with other sons, or sorry, with other bodhisattvas, <coughs> other sons of king of the law, other bodhisattvas. He also said that the mind is neither within nor without. I now deduce that if the mind is in the body, it does not see anything within. And if it is outside, they both cease to feel each other. So I got what you're saying. To say that it is within is wrong, for it does not know anything inside the body. To say that it is without is also faulty, since body and mind can perceive each other. As they do so, as they do so and since nothing is seen in the body, the mind should be between the two. Right? I.e., between the inside and the outside. And now you start to say, between them. It's between them. So between inside and outside. Ah, ha, 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 ha. He got it. No, he didn't. He didn't. <laughs> uh, all right. Between the two, i.e. the inside and the outside. The Buddha said, if your conception of a mind in between is correct, it implies a position for it. Now, according to your inference, where is this intermediate position between? Do you mean that it is in or on the body somewhere? If it is on the surface of the body, it cannot be in its center. And the conception of a mind in the center is no different from that of a mind in the body, which was refuted earlier. Moreover, if it's, it, moreover is its position manifest or not? If it is not, it does not exist. If it is, 
It is not fixed. Why? For instance, if, I st- if a stake is driven into the ground to mark a center, when seen from the east, it is in the west, and when seen from the south, it is in the north. As this stake can only lead to confusion, so is your conception of a mind between completely chaotic. Ananda said, no, no, no. The intermediate position that I mentioned is not those two. As the world honor one has said, the eyes and form, right, the eyes and shape, the eyes and form, are causes from which sight perception arises, right? While the eyes, sorry, sorry, um, while the eyes can distinguish from form does not follow anything, and perception lies between them, hence the mind arises. We found that? So he just clarified, he's like, no, 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 no. Not spatially in between the two, in between them in that kind of like this, but a little more like in between the two, because that's what he's trying to argue here. The Buddha said, if the mind lies between sense organs and sense data, right? Does it include both or not? Does it include both or not? If it does, its substance of this mind you're talking about and what is outside of it will be all mixed up together. And since the mind perceives while its objects do not, two opposites will be set up. Then how can there be this intermediate position? So that's if... If this mind you're talking about includes both of those, so then you're telling me that my mind is the light too? That doesn't make any sense. Right? That's what the Buddha is saying. You're saying it's the, is it both the eye and the light? Does it include both? If it does, then you're saying that your mind is the light. Uh, and he's like, yeah, be careful about that one, right? So if the mind lies between, if it does, it's substance and what is outside will all be mixed up together. And since the mind perceives, while its objects don't perceive, two opposites would be set up. Then how can there be this intermediate position? Now, if this mind you're talking about is not inclusive of the organ and the object, that is, if it is independent of the sense organs and sense data, being neither the knower nor the known, it has no substance. Then what is this intermediate? Therefore, your contention that it is in between is groundless. Are you following all this? I mean, again, I know this is like heavy. You should just sort of be thinking about all of this, not in terms of necessarily like the right or the wrongness, but just the exploration of all of these things. Of like, and you can modern, you can make it more modern. Like if you think, like if you think mind and, and memory or consciousness and all that like has something to do with synapses or something like that, then that's thinking that it's in the organ or in the body, right? That the, and then all of these things kind of are still in play in terms of like, okay, if you think it's the synapses, why can't all of that perceive anything inside the body? If this mind is inside your body, how come it has no perception of being inside your body? Not, uh, not perception of being in it, but no perception of anything else inside of it. It's kind of absurd at a certain point to claim it's inside your head or inside your mind, when you have no proof of that. You can't tell me what it's like in there. It's you just making an assumption. 
It's like, like you have a mind inside your head. Like, What's my explaining doing right now? It's like we're not built that way. So it's, it's leading to a conclusion by making that assumption. It's like, well, my, my toenail is, is, has a certain amount of ennui, but my explaining is really pissed off. It's like, well, or, or like I need to, yep. you know. Yep, that would so, be a refutation. I, I've heard a little bit of that in each one of the seven. It's like, and it is about what we're getting at here, of course, is identifying, trying to locate it, identify it, understand it. And it's all of these exercises is to really push you and challenge you to think about all of these things. And it's something that we take totally for granted, which is our mind, right? But I'm t- it gets better. It gets, and it, we're only on page eight for crying out loud, right? So, and, these are, and these are all just, by the way, these are all sort of like, um, contemporary with the suture, contemporary ideas of the mind. They're being refuted here. Okay. Um, so, ba, ba, ba. so yeah, that's great. Therefore, your contention that it is in between here, in between, is groundless. So that was happening. Okay. Ananda said, world honor one. Previously, when I saw the Buddha, uh, actually, This is actually, well, anyways. These are counted differently. Usually no only has seven answers, but I count eight. So this is either the seventh or the eighth answer here. Ananda said, word on it. Previously, when I saw the Buddha with his four chief disciples, Maguyayana Shibuti, Maitreya Yanaputra, and Shariputra, when I saw him turn the wheel of the law, He always said that the nature of the knowing and discriminating mind is neither within nor without nor between the two, exists nowhere and clings to nothing. Hence, it is called mind. Is that which does not cling to things called mind? So, this eighth answer... That which does not cling. How about that? So remember that thing you're always saying, right? Clings to nothing, hence it's called mind. Is that which does not cling to things, is that called mind? The Buddha replied, you just said, that the nature of the knowing and discriminating mind exists nowhere. Now, in this world, all things in the air, in the water, on the ground, including those that fly and walk, all of it makes the existing whole. By that which, by that which does not cling to anything, do you mean that it exists or not? If it is not, it is just like the hair of a tortoise or the horn of a hair, or the horn or the horn of a hair. Buddhism always talks about the hair of a tortoise or the horn or the horn of a hair, horn of a rabbit. You can talk about rabbit horns all you want, but rabbits don't have horns. And you can talk about tortoise fur or tortoise fur, but turtles don't have fur. But you can you can say it. You can, you can imagine it. You can imagine it, right? But just because you can say it and imagine it doesn't make it so. So here the Buddha says, 
By that which does not cling to anything, do you mean that it exists or not? If it is not, it is just like the hair of a tortoise or the horn of a rabbit. Then how can there be this extra non-clinging? If it is, it cannot be said to not exist. Right? That which is not is simply non-existent, and that which is should have a position. Now, then, sorry, then how can there be no clinging? Therefore, your contention that that which does not cling to anything as the knowing mind is groundless. Right. Now we've exhausted Ananda. <laughs> Thereupon, Ananda rose from his seat, uncovered his right shoulder, knelt upon his right knee, reverentially joined his palms to his uh, palms of his hands together, and said to the Buddha, "I am the Tathagata's youngest cousin, and because of his great affection, I have been allowed to be his disciple. But I have presumed on his great compassion, and so although I have heard much of his preaching, I have failed to avoid the worldly." And I have been unable to overcome the magic which has turned me round, causing me to visit a house of prostitution. All this is because I failed to reach the realm of capital R reality. May the world honored one be compassionate enough to teach us the path of shamatha for the benefit of those lacking faith and holding perverted views. After saying this, he prostrated himself with his knees, elbows, and head on the ground, and he stood up in reverent silence with the whole assembly keenly waiting. For the Buddha's teaching. By the Buddha's transcendental powers, all sorts of rays of light as brilliant as hundreds and thousands of suns shone from his forehead, illuminating all the Buddha lands in the eastern direction, which shook with six kinds of quakes. Thus, a number of worlds, uncountable as the dust, appeared simultaneously and by the same power of the Buddha united into a single world system wherein each of the great bodhisattvas while staying in his own realm brought his palms together to listen to the Dharma in this realm. <laughs> that was also like Shurangama, like the light emanating. The Buddha said, since time without beginning, all living beings have given rise to all sorts of inversion because of the karmic seeds of ignorance, which is like the Akasha shrub, which has three parts. This is why seekers of the truth fail to realize supreme unsurpassable enlightenment, but achieve only the states of voice-hearing shravakas or self-enlightened pratekyabhutas, heretics, devas, and demons solely because they do not know the two basic inversions, thereby practicing wrongly like those who cannot get food by cooking sand in spite of the passing of kalpas as countless as the dust. What are these two basic inversions of which I speak? Ananda. The first is the basic root of birth and death caused since the time without beginning by the wrong use of a clinging mind which people mistake for their own nature. And the second is their attachment to causal conditions which screen the basically bright essence of consciousness 
which is the fundamentally pure and clean substance of nirvanic enlightenment. Thus they ignore this basic brightness and so transmigrate through illusory realms of existence without realizing the futility of their wrong practice. So that's the initial statement of the fundamental teaching of this sutra, is that there are these two actual minds at play. One is this capital T, capital M, true mind, pure and bright, that we're going to learn all about. And then this deluded mind, the clinging mind. So by the Buddha's... As you have inquired about the Shamatha gateway through which to escape from birth and death, I must ask you a few questions. The Buddha then held up his golden-hued arm and bent his fingers, saying, Ananda, do you see this? Ananda replied, yes. The Buddha asks, what do you see? Ananda replied, I see the Buddha raise his arm and bend his fingers, showing a shining fist that dazzles my mind and eyes. The Buddha asked, how do you see it? Ananda replied, I and all those here use eyes to see it. The Buddha asked, you say that I bend my fingers to show a shining fist that dazzles your mind and eyes. Now tell me, as you see my fist, what is that mind which perceives its brightness? Ananda replied, as the Tathagata asks about the mind, and since I am using my own mind to search for it exhaustively, I conclude that that which searches is my mind. The Buddha said, hey, Ananda, that's not your mind. He says that. Hey, Ananda, that's not your mind. (laughs) Ananda stared with astonishment, brought his two palms together, rose from his seat and asked, if this is not my mind, what is it? The Buddha replied, Ananda, this is your false thinking, which arises from external objects deludes your true nature and deceives you into mistaking since the time without beginning a thief for your own son thereby losing sight of that which is basically permanent hence the round of birth and death Ananda said I am the Buddha's beloved youngest cousin whose mind so admired him that I left home to serve and make offerings to the Tathagata and to all Buddhas and enlightened teachers in the lands as countless as sand grains in the Ganges river if I, am determined, if I am determined to do all difficult dharma duties, it is because I use this mind. And even if I now slander the dharma, causing my excellent qualities to weaken forever, it is also because of this mind. If it, is, if it was not mind, I would have no mind and would be like the earth or a log, for nothing exists beyond what I feel and know. Why does the Buddha now say that this is not my mind? This frightens me and also the assembly and not, and not one of us can hear or avoid being doubtful and suspicious about it. Will you be so compassionate as to enlighten us? So if you were like, what, the, what did he just say? Ananda was like, if that's not my mind, what is, right? From his lion seat, the Buddha in order to teach Ananda and the assembly so that they could all achieve the patient endurance of the, ah, this is a terrible translation. 
So they have, so that everybody can achieve the patient endurance of the uncreate. Come on, people. So this is Anupatika Dharma Kashanti, which is the tolerance for the birthlessness of all things. We've talked in the past about, I have talked about the birthlessness of all things. That from a dharmic perspective in terms of dependent origination, all things are not created or destroyed. They are conditionally manifest, right? And so the bowl, whatever it might be, table, chairs, we have the notion that they have all been created from somewhere, are now existing here, and then will be destroyed and go somewhere. But if we have a, a right view of this, which is dependently originated and therefore empty, it's not created, i.e. born anywhere. If it's born anywhere, it's born in my mind. Right here, right now, as I try to conceive of it, as a concept. But the, the concept, that bowl, it's birthless. It's unformed. And so there is this kashanti, a tolerance or a patience for the birthlessness of all things. Because to hear that all things have not been created and will not be destroyed and that they're all ultimately empty can be a little disconcerting. But to be cool with it, to be tolerant of that, and be like, oh, that's this. So, from his lion seat, the Buddha, in order to teach Ananda and the assembly so that they could all achieve this tolerance for the birthlessness of all things, he held out his hand to touch Ananda's head, saying, the Tathagata has always said that all phenomena are manifestations of mind and that all causes and effects, including all things from the world, to its dust, take shape solely because of the mind. Ananda, if we look at all the worlds and all existing things, including even grass and leaves, and investigate their roots, they are all made of matter and have qualities, and even the empty void has its name and quality. Then how can the pure and clean, profound, bright, true mind, which is the underlying nature of every discriminating mind, be without its own substance? If you grasp firmly the knowledge which comes from your discrimination between feeling and seeing as your true mind, it should have its own nature independent of all sense data such as form, smell, taste, and touch. As you now listen to my sermon on the Dharma, you di differentiate because you hear my voice. Even if you succeed in putting an end to all seeing, hearing, feeling, and even knowing, and so preserve inner quiet, the shadow of your differentiation of things still remains. I do not want you to hold that this is not mine but you should examine it carefully and minutely. That which continues to possess discerning nature, even in the absence of sense data, is really your mind. On the other hand, if this discerning nature ceases with sense data, this is merely the shadow of your differentiation of them, for they are not permanent, and when they cease to exist, so does this so-called mind you're talking about like the hair of a tortoise or the horn of a rabbit. If your dharmakaya, your dharma body, can so easily cease to be, who will then practice and realize the patient endurance of the birthlessness of all things? 
After hearing this, Ananda and all those present were completely bewildered. <laughs> so don't, if you're like, I'm, I'm totally lost, I'm no idea what you're talking about. And even Ananda is totally bewildered. Are you in questions about all this yet? <laughs> I mean, again, this is a major unpack. This whole sutra is about this idea of the mind. Where is the mind? What is the mind? This is the premier like mind-only school sutra in terms of all it's dealing with is this idea of let's find the mind. Yeah, let's since we're sort of like at time, let's I'm gonna just try to do a little bit about what just happened so that you kind of know where this is going. So I I've been talking about this a lot lately in classes and it was only when I picked this up that I was like, oh, this is the perfect sutra for this idea. So I have been talking a lot about this, the way in which we as human beings, and in fact, from a Buddhist point of view, this is true of all sentient beings, sentient meaning any sentient, any being with sentient organs, all sentient beings operate this way, that our thinking is rather deterministic, meaning that our, the, the little mind thinking is, is totally like um, conditioned by the world that I, I didn't have, um, you know, I didn't, the idea of getting some pizza today, it didn't come just from in here. It came from me, you know, ooh, pizza. And then like sense organs, sense data, mmm, pizza, mmm, sounds good, mm, I'll go get it. And so I'm totally it's like an automaton. It's like, oh, sense data, negative, positive reaction, uh, more of that, please, less of that, please. And so there is this totally automatic automaton mind that is the, the totality of these six Dijnanas. This whole operating system, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body and mind, sensing and either liking it or not liking it, and going, no, 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 I want more of this, less of that, more of that. All of that is being caused by your reactions to things. It's totally dependent upon those. And insofar as it's being tricked into Mara's Ikea here, and like, oh, look at all the stuff, and oh, yeah. Like, as much as you're doing that, right, that's all that deluded, determined mind. What this is talking about, though, is that there is a true bright mind that is the discerning mind. So it's this weird relationship between these two minds, this little M mind that's sort of the automaton here, and then this big M mind that ultimately will be indestructible. I'm giving you a little spoiler in terms of where the title of this comes from, to identify with, i.e. cling to, i.e. be, in, to identify with the little M mind, the little automaton, oh, that's who I am, and I like my stuff, and da-da-da-da-da, right? That is to be totally wrapped up in samsara, totally wrapped up in Mara's Ikea, and just like, ugh. But the idea, though, is, is that there is this indestructible true mind that transcends time and space that is, it's from that mind that all of this is happening. There's no other place for it to come from but from this 
what is called the alaya vijnana, this storehouse consciousness is what's being referred to as the, quote, true mind, this grand mind. That is this, what they call bright, capital B, bright, capital P, pure mind. And that mind is enlightened. That mind is Buddha. That mind's enlightened. And that's your mind as well. But when you slip into just reacting to things and just responding, you're an automaton. The moment you stop and do mindfulness practice or anything and you are participating in this higher mind, it all gets tricky. Ananda. It's tricky. It's really tricky what and where these minds are. We've already been through. We don't know where or what these minds are. But this sutra is going to draw a distinction between an, an automatic determined mind that is deluded, all of that, but that we are also participating in this bright, pure, transcendent, capital M mind. And we could actually fully kind of migrate, if you will, our, our mind to only be identifying with or only participating in that true mind. Yeah, leave. Hey, um, I have a problem a little bit, not a problem, but with the explanation, maybe also the thing is with um, the outer world and the inner world, um, because what the first thing that comes up for me is duality. And, um, you know, if there is no, if there's no, the outer world only exists because there's the inner world. There's no outer world, there's no inner world. In my, from my experiences, right? Mm -hmm. And when you explain, you know, you just explained with the pizza thing, and then the deluded mind is, you know, coming from yoga, it's chitta, right? Something similar. So when you explain the um, situation with pizza, um, in my experiences, pizza doesn't come into to my mind because it's an external sensation that I perceive, because it, it comes from, from conditioning and the chitta itself. Because when we go, you know, when we take a walk, um, and I don't have conditioning about pizza because I don't like pizza and it's not in my life, right? And I don't perceive it, even though if I if I see it, you know, you know where, where I'm coming from. Yeah, I would just want to kind of um, go a little deeper with this idea of this so-called deluded mind. What I'm, you know, and deluded is tricky, but it's about this. Um, um, yeah, I use this example of pizza, but it, it doesn't really matter because the idea is, is that you're walking down the street and you're receiving all kinds of stimuli, all kinds of things are coming at you. And, you know, the Buddhist idea is that the, the operating system of the sentient being is one of positive, negative, and neutral reactions that then manifest in perceptions of objects that have given me negative and positive or neutral things, which then manifest into mind states based on positive and negative reactions. So that idea of I'm walking down the street and I'm like, oh, that's pretty, oh, that's ugly, oh, that, all of that, which then might make me turn the corner and be like, oh, I see, I see someone coming at me, I don't wanna see them, I'm gonna make a left. And the idea that I've, I have made the decision to make a left, no, no, no. All this stuff made me do that. And that may, and the stuff that, one more thing, one more thing, the stuff that made me do it is also my samskaras, my past feelings about who's coming down the street. All of that is conditioning me as well. 
And all of that is a ton of judgment, a ton of prejudice, a ton of everything. Prejudice and judgment about what will make me happy, what's not making me happy, all of that. And the idea that there's this lower mind that is just responding to the world. It's just totally like, all right, what's next? What's next? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh. And you're just waiting to respond to the world. That's this deluded, determined mind that we think is our own. We think that we've come up with these bright ideas all on our own. Like, oh, wouldn't it be great if somebody did that? Well, you got that idea from a whole bunch of other stuff, if you know what I mean. You didn't come up with that idea all by your own, but there is an idea that there are not necessarily ideas, but there are, there's enlightenment that can come from within that is not dependent or determined by the things of this world. There's an aspect of our mind that is not determined by this world. It's not even playing in this world. And this sutra is about us trying to see where is that mind? Where is that mind? And where is the deluded, totally automatic mind? And the point is, is there, there's a relationship between the two. And that's why there was this moment where the Buddha was like, I don't want you to think that that's not your mind. Like, you can't let go of... of all of these vijnanas as your mind. Because it's actually through all of this that we gain access to this truer mind. There's no other way but through this. But it's about dis- it's about it's about samyadristi. It's about right view. It's about understanding oh, no, no, no. I didn't actually want that. <laughs> I was sort of tricked by my senses and tricked by advertising and tricked by uh, uh, good, you know, fonts, right? I, I get tricked into going to restaurants a lot based on their font, right? Now, is that because I really want what's in there or have I been just conditioned to think, oh, they'll have good food because they got a nice font? It's total, it's, it's deluded. It's totally stupid and that's that mind. Then there's this mind that is thinking, that's like curious, that knows suffering, knows something's wrong here, is like something's, that mind that wants out, that mind that doesn't want to suffer, that mind is closer to the true, pure mind. And again, it's this weird relationship where they are kind of the same mind, but not. Like the Buddha's always, no, 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 no. And there's also, if, if, if I, I need to say this tonight, as we go through this sutra, this sutra and others have the Buddha saying, I didn't tell you about this, the bright true mind, because I knew you'd cling to it as a self, like you always do. He says that, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, I didn't tell you about this before because I knew you'd cling to it as a self because it's what we want to do. And the Buddha's like, so I'll tell you about this now, but you have to understand that that alaya vijnana, it's the collective consciousness you don't get to participate in that. What, what you get to do is let go of this delusion of a self and then and thereby participate in the alaya vijnana. But it's this collective grand unconsciousness. It's not a true self. It's not your true self that you will then be like, ah, I have discovered my true self. From what I understand it, it's a total disillusion of the self, a total dropping away of the self that, again, is thereby your ticket in. What you're talking about, is this similar to the Tibetan concept of appearance of mind versus essence of mind? Yeah. 
In a, in a way, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of ways that this idea plays out. The, this idea, though, that there's the mind that's totally an automaton just reacting to the world, and then there's this, like, other state of mind, that's classic Buddhism. Classic. That's really at the heart of Buddhism is recognizing that so much of our thinking is conditioned, and the conditioned, the samskaric, the conditioned mind, that's samsara. That's what that is, the conditioned mind. Nirvana is the unconditioned mind. Nirvana is the liberated mind. Nirvana is the Buddha mind. Nirvana is that mind. And that's where we are all sitting simultaneously in samsara and nirvana in that way. Whereas that de the degree to which we're clinging to the self, stuff and ideas, puts us in the deluded state of samsara. The degree to which I am not clinging to myself, stuff and ideas, Ooches me towards the nirvanic state of mind. It's a spectrum. Yeah. Can you explain um, why do you think he explained the um, Buddhist nature, so to speak, and often they talk about pristine, right? Pristine? Pristine? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, why they, um, in this book, they talk about what the characteristic of this you know, mind is, is pride. Bright. Yeah, in, in your understanding, what comes to my mind is then really like, you know, he, because normally what in, in a lot of sutras, they don't describe what is, right? They, they describe what not is in yeah. order for us to have an, uh, keep an investigating of mind and that our mind is not getting stuck in desire and attachment and stuff, right? With pride, I have the problem a little bit with because then darkness or mm -hmm. the opposite comes to my mind, sure. right? So, can you explain to me what pride minds in that context? Mm -hmm. So, and it's really to the point with the mind only, the Yogacara Buddhism. So the idea is, is um, what, what a Yogacara teacher would say is, um, so we have, we have the notion that that, that, is, that those three, four, whatever lights, five, six, those lights are the source of illumination that allow me to see the objects on this table, right? When I'm outside, the sun is the source of illumination that allows me to see the cars and everything there, right? And if it's nighttime, maybe it's moonlight, street lights, whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. The Yogacara teacher says to the student, now think of a dream you had and in that dream, you saw things, or you were walking down the street and saw things. What's the source of illumination there? What is illuminating the, the objects of your dream that allows you to see them? The dream light bulbs? The dream sun? The dream moon? What's the source of illumination in a dream? The mind. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I'll just, I'll just, the mind. That's the idea. Your mind is the source of illumination. So now what happens with the Yogacara is, is that we think light comes from there, bounces off the bowl, hits my eye, and that's how I see it. The Yogacara thinks light goes from here that they talk about sunshine eyes, bright illuminating sunshine eyes. And it's the idea that it is the mind, the conditioned habit of the mind that 
is believes in physics and believes in science and all that stuff, that mind thinks the light goes this way. The enlightened mind knows that the source of illumination here and now is the same source of illumination as in a dream. The source of illumination right here, right now is your mind. And the idea of that is, is that if you could really tap into what I just said and in a way drop the deluded dark mind, you would have this beamingly bright mind of pure consciousness that could illuminate all the Buddha lands in 10 directions. That's the, the in Buddhism, the, the adjective or the metaphor or whatever of bright mind is that they are talking about the mind as the source of illumination. And I'm talking about how we see, how we see. Yeah. It gets crazy, of course, because this mind-only stuff is ultimately saying what I just said, that even the light is, it's a mistake to think that it's the light that's causing me to see all of this. And it's enlightened, to understand that it's the mind itself actually that is causing the illumination of all of this. That's the idea of it. Like I said, it's a whole sutra on this idea, and we've only really scratched the surface in terms of probing what we think, the, where, and, and what the mind might be. Right? So, this whole first bit with Ananda is just this little game of like, all right, let's feel this out. <laughs> you think your mind's in, in, in between your ears and behind your eyes? You think it's in the skin? Where, do you, where is it? Come on, show it. Talk to me. And the idea of any kind of Buddhism is that all these things, we take it all for granted. And the minute we are encouraged to put it under the microscope and start peeling back the layers, it's like, oh my God, I don't know where my mind is. It's, it's so obvious because it's like, like Ananda said, it's what I'm using to think about this, but... Yeah. Uh, one last, no, uh, please. What I, uh, maybe it's a little bit later in the book. What I'm wondering at one point, maybe you will refer to it, if, if Buddha then at one point says, um, because he says, no, 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 no. He could also say, yes, 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 yes. In a way, like, you know, the form is emptiness, emptiness form, it comes to my mind, right? Yep. So, um, yeah. Yeah. This is, like I said, we're, we're going to a place of mind only. So inside, outside, all of that's about to get challenged big time because it's only the deluded, discriminatory, automatic mind that is having the subject-object experience. It's part of the clinging program, right? That's the initial clinging. The initial stroke of the Lakshana brush is, that's not me. You're not me. I'm bringing out all my brushes and I'm painting everything with the characteristic of other. And then I'll paint it as pretty or whatever. But that the initial stroke of that, of that brush of the mind of Lakshana is to say, ah, oh, that's other than me. And oh, look, I'll paint that with the brush stroke of me, of subject. And that's object, right? But the whole idea is that it's the brush strokes of the mind doing that. It's the brushstroke of the mind saying, you're present, meaning like here now. And then I'm thinking of like last week. Oh, that's a brushstroke of the past that I've given to that notion, right? So I have this idea of last Sunday. Last Sunday, I wasn't here, right? Yeah. 
Remember that? So that idea has the brushstroke of having occurred already, of having happened, and it's in the past. Now, remember, remember next week? <laughs> That's my favorite joke, right? Remember next week? <laughs> remember next week when I am here? We'll paint that one with the brushstroke of in the future. Now tell me, that one about when I wasn't here and that one about when I will be here or was here or am here, are those any different? Are they, aren't they both just ideas? Is the one over here farther away than the one over here? Come on. These are all ideas. This is what we're talking about. Yesterday, today, now, up, down, pretty, me, you, all of these. All of it are, are brushstrokes of the mind. The, there's a beautiful, uh, I don't have the sutra with me, but there's a sutra that, where the, a bodhisattva says that the mind is an artist that paints with dharmas. Or lakshana characteristics, which is what I've been doing. Painting everything with lakshanas. Oh, look, you're here, and you're not me. Oh, and you're pretty, and you sound nice. Those are all lakshana. Those are all projections of my mind onto what I think I am perceiving out there. And then I'm like, oh, look, it's pretty. It comes back to me and reinforces my deluded belief in it, right? Yeah, I, I see this now, especially the first, uh, first answer and the second is almost like an intervention. Like that kind of way of thinking that you just demonstrated, uh, and also that what the Buddha is demonstrating to Ananda is the way to intervene, going back to the sexual desire because, And I wonder if that's one of the uses of the sutra, because you, you kind of went to like the pizza and material stuff, Though sometimes we have coping skills, we can calm and make intellectual decisions, no. But with the sexual energy, it's like what you mentioned, the atonement. So are those kind of almost like dhyanas or samadhi mm. that are intervening to get to a place to make a better decision with the sexual energy? Yes. So when I mentioned about the, that the shrangama is a samadhi, But I mentioned this thing quickly about how Mahayana samadhis are different than Theravada samadhis. Our old school samadhi, infinite, infinite space, infinite consciousness, infinite nothingness, the traditional samadhis, those are sit down, cross your legs, breathe deep, go into dhyana, and then go into samadhi. And then there are these samadhis where everything seems to be infinite space, infinite consciousness, infinite nothingness, and then neither perception or non-perception. Old school Buddhism states of mind. These samadhis, these Mahayana samadhis, like a Shurangama samadhi, they are achieved by reading this. Like you're saying, what I'm getting at is the, how, how would one get into the Shurangama samadhi? By first wondering, is my mind in my body? No. Is it outside my body? Is it in between? Is it, uh, is it that? Oh, no, it's not that. And so you actually, as you're reading the sutra, It's reprogramming your mind. I'm trying to do that here by talking about it, where it's like you, we have all gone through the steps of going like, huh, is it in my book? Is it? Could it? No, it can't be outside. And we're, by going through that, it's a necessary step. 
you cannot just <laughs> jump to the middle like, oh, no, let's get to this. You won't enter the samadhi. So, yeah, I mean, in terms of what I think you were just saying, these are steps on the process. Definitely. And that's how these samadhis in Mahayana work. They're very subtle, like, cues and ideas that lead one into a contemplative meditative state. It's not just this cross your legs, breathe deep, and zone out type thing. They're much more, like, oddly, like, philosophical narratives. That's what I love about these is that we have no corollary in the West for this type of, like, mental manipulation with ideas. So, Brendan? Yes. Um, are we, uh, this is crazy shit here. Um, so this is a new thing. This feels like a new thing I'm fighting with. Like, maybe this is, he's going to pull the rug out. Oh, we've always been talking about this, but this is a different concept. Yeah, you should know that, uh, just real quickly, you should know that while throughout history, even in, I don't have it up there, but even in, in 700 AD, when this was first translated into Chinese, and then definitely during the Song Dynasty, during the Ming Dynasty, there were some folks that were like, I don't know about this one. This is a little edgy. Now, it's, it's this thing where no, everybody says this is a legitimate sutra. Nobody has ever tossed this in the pile of apocrypha, as it's called. The kind of like, ah, that's just like fringe Buddhism. This has always made the cut. But there have been people that have wondered like, is this it? Is this the Buddha Dharma? Like, this seems a little, like, I don't know. Again, this is foundational for a lot of schools of Buddhism. Um, as we go through this, you will find so many Zen-isms. Um, the, all of these, uh, the, don't mistake the finger pointing at the moon. Everybody says that that's a Zen master said that. No, it's from this. It's a beautiful part of the sutra in which the Buddha goes through this whole thing about mistaking the finger pointing at the moon. So there's all these beautiful things in here that become the foundations for schools of Buddhism. It's tripped people out, like meaning in a good way. But I just want you to know that if you're kind of like, this is kind of rubbing me a weird way, you are not the only one in history to have that reaction to this sutra. Yeah, yeah, I can't have a question. Never mind. Okay, good. Yeah. This discussion with Ananda, this reminds me, this sort of, this sort of logical analysis, but it's really sort of pseudo-logic. It, it reminds me very much of like reading Thomas Aquinas. You know, mm-hmm. did, you know, did the devil fall before his creation, or did he fall after his creation? Mm-hmm. How many angels can dance in the head of a pin, or whatever? Mm-hmm. It's 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 of that flavor. It's sort I, of, that sort of pre-scientific attempts to be logical mm. without actually having. But where it's like the, assum- the underlying assumptions are a little shaky. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I would see. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> the only difference that I I see it though is that it's so um, existential in the sense of it's not so speculative necessarily about the world. It's about this like very personal experience of the world and asking you. How do you experience this world? Like, what's really experiencing it? And again, Buddhism's always taking these things that we take so for granted, like the self. Duh. Michael. <laughs> Has a name. Like, and then, again, as soon as you actually are challenged in some way, of like, 
Oh yeah? Well, what's Michael? What is it really? Which version of you and all of these things, it's kind of like, oh, it's not as clear cut as I thought. So that's the point of it, is not necessarily to create a logical argument that's uh, watertight, irrefutable, nobody can touch this. It's actually an exercise of deconstructing the self to arrive at certain places where you're like, oh yeah, I've never really thought about that. And this is the limit of my knowledge on that. I can't see inside me <laughs> type of a thing. So, yep. Well, I think you just kind of answered it, but I'm going to ask my question again anyway. Do it. Am I hearing you correctly in that? Here it goes. I do my asanas and it gets me to a certain place. I sit down and I do vipassana and I use my awareness to get to a certain place. This takes my intellect and works it out and just this and that fits it until I get to that place. Is yeah. that? Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing about, you know, I've said this so many times that, you know, people get a Mahayana Sutra and they're like, so when, when is he going to tell me how many breaths to take? When's, uh, when are the asanas? Where's the, the sitting postures? There's no yoga or meditation in here. It's because reading this is a meditation. Actually reading this and being like, oh, there's Ananda again, and like going through it. And again, not skipping to the juicy stuff, but going all the way through the process actually reprograms the mind. Yeah, Nora. Hi. Um. Yeah, you talk about like the Vijnana and that actually you can't forget about them. Right. You have to go through them. Yep. So it's about de-entangling the little mind and the big mind, correct? Like the little it's mind about untangling the little mind to reveal the big mind. To reveal the big mind. So for me, when I hear that, it feels like, okay, they're just talking about meditation. I don't... I don't see how this text is leading to any other practice than meditation. Versus, for example, like pure land Buddhism, that would be like devotional practice. Like reading the text oh, is yeah, yeah, yeah. obvious that you would do devotional practice. Yep. This feels like you just need to meditate. Um, certainly. And again, this is like a basis for Zen Buddhism, which is all about meditation. And the idea is certainly like, you would read this and have these ideas and sit with them, do meditation on them. But I do just want to emphasize, though, that there is this idea in Buddhism that the act of reading it is a meditation that's transformative. Or the act of hearing about it. Even, again, me walking you through it step by step is, is just as good as reading it in that sense. But it is actually going through the ideas in, that, in this order... In fact, there's a big deal about this, that actually this is a program or a deprogram or whatever, and it has to go in this order, and that these things are very, this is the architecture of a sutra, that these things are very, very carefully laid out, that they want to lead you from ignorance to enlightenment, and it reprograms the mind if you think this way, then this way, and wonder about this, and wonder about this, and then imagine the light of the Buddha's Anisha coming out, and you really visualize it. All of that's part of developing this samadhi this mind state, which from the outside would might look like this. If you know what I mean, you might be sitting there like going through it, especially you have to keep in mind that most of these sutras were memorized. They were not uh, read per se. They, they were memorized. And so then, you know, you know it. And so you could sit with it and all of that. But so can you in your embodied experience in real time? Yes. Like, yes, and that's what the, the practice is actually all about. 
the seated practice would just be with training wheels to get you to the real world where you're in the samadhi, having the samadhi experience and actually un, undoing the deluded mind right here, right now in your waking state at the pizza shop. <laughs> yeah. So it's ritual. It's not just reading it as a meditation. Ah. Reading it is ritual because it's got a sequence of order. Ah, yeah, in that sense, yeah. Rituals, ritual is just a tricky word, but okay. in that sense of a procedure mm-hmm. in that way, definitely. And some meditation is very ritualistic as well, you know. Yep. No. And stages, but... Absolutely. Absolutely. And I've said this before, and I need to reiterate it, you know, the reason why these sutras don't have breathing exercises and all of that is because it's assumed that you already know how to achieve some of the deepest samadhis around. We don't need to tell you how to sit and breathe. That's so, like, you wouldn't be here if you didn't already know how to get into a samadhi. Because the idea is like, all right, samadhi head, you ready? Are you ready for the shirangama samadhi? But again, the assumption is, is you already know about samadhi. You already know how to get there. And it's like, yeah, infinite space, infinite consciousness, been there, done that. What else you got? Well, how about true bright Buddha mind? Oh, okay, I'll try that samadhi. You know? Yeah. Well, and it also reminds me in monasteries, there is actually the practice besides meditation, the practice of um, discuss, discussing this um, topics. The right? Dharma talks. Right? Yeah. Big part of it. And, and again, it can be a substitute for reading it in that way that if, you know, most sutra uh, recitations and sutra study, they go line by line, start with the title, word by word, line by line. And by the time you're done with the seminar, you have read it all, even though you never actually read a word. You just heard the whole thing. So. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's so fun. I, I know it was a little heavy, it was a little heavy, but a little bit, a little bit.